Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. I'm Nicholson Baker, and I'm a writer. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Reading around the main story, reading the stories on either side, functions as a kind of time machine where you're almost involuntarily pulled back into time, and you feel that you're swimming in something rather than kind of hovering over it. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. In this episode, I speak with the award-winning novelist Nicholson Baker whose book, Human Smoke, I read for the second time last summer. For those who haven't read it, Human Smoke is a unique take on writing history, collaging fragments from newspapers, diaries, and contemporaneous accounts of the years leading up to World War II. Baker's own voice recedes into the background, letting these dust particles of history shape a new story, an impassioned statement for pacifism in the face of war. In doing so, the book asks us to reevaluate our assumptions about the heroes and villains of World War II, people like Churchill and Roosevelt. Suffice it to say, it speaks to our present moment in more ways than one. We get into the particulars of Baker's methodology and how the novel can be more true to history than any academic account. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I really did. Nicholson Baker, I am so happy that you agreed to come and talk with me on the podcast. You know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit I read Vox when everyone read Vox, which is like a million years ago. And I remember <laughs> liking it and thinking it was important. And I sure remember everybody talking about it in bars, which is where we met back in the day. But I don't really remember Vox. My real encounter with you and your writing and your mind came reading this book you wrote called Human Smoke. And for years, I have asked people in the middle of dinner party conversations when the conversation inevitably turned to war or the newspaper or fascism, as it does increasingly. Uh, in contemporary life, I've said, have you ever read this guy, Nicholson Baker's book, Human Smoke? I read it, I think, when it first came out in 2008, and I reread it again this summer because it felt particularly urgent to me to reread it in the face of the war that's happening in Ukraine, which I understand to be a kind of proxy war between the United States and and Russia. Um, and I really, I'm, 
I also just wanted to return to a book that was written a while ago now and mm. to not have our conversations of books only happen in the press tour that accompanies the book, but to to have a conversation with you about a book you did write many years ago that... Mm -hmm. I'm just enormously touched that you found things in the book that uh, that you liked to know. And and I, I'm glad that because, so, you know, later on, as the years go by, you kind of have a foggy feeling that some people liked it and some people hated it. And, um, and then somebody like you says, I reread it and it's just a thrill actually. So Human Smoke, uh, which is a book about the years leading up to World War II um, and particularly the years leading up to the American entrance into the war. It's a book that interests me for several reasons that fall into two basic camps. One is method, um, how the book is written and assembled. And the other is content, um, because it's a book that makes a very slow and steady argument for pacifism, which is a really it's a revisionist history of World War II. And when I read the book, when it came out in 2008, it literally changed the way I read the newspaper because I began to see the newspaper not as only the news of the day, but as a series of crumbs that were predicting the future. Um, and so I wanted, I wondered if I could ask you first about method. And just if you could talk a little bit about how you came to this very aphoristic, fragmented, polyphonic version of telling this story of the American entrance into World War II. Well, it, 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 it was partly that I didn't know enough. And I was writing, in fact, uh, about a phase in the Cold War at the time. And I thought uh, all of these threads that I'm writing about go back to World War II. And I, did, I just didn't know enough about World War II. So that was one idea, was how do you educate yourself about something as complicated as multifarious, as, as, as full of contradictions as a huge thing with an umbrella word war over it. So that was part of it. But the other thing that really hit me was part of a project I was doing before uh, writing these historical things. I was working on a, a sort of chronicle of something that happened in the history of libraries when they when they decided that you could microfilm things and reformat them, that is, throw away the originals and keep the microfilm. And I ended up, uh, my wife and I founded this newspaper repository. So suddenly we were responsible for many, many tons of bound newspaper volumes bought at auction from the British Library. One of the runs was about the size of a locomotive, and it was the Herald Tribune, the New York Herald Tribune, and I would just open pages from, say, 1939, 1938, and I saw that the way the war, the war was being, the growing tendency toward war was being reported made more sense to me than, than when I was reading accounts of of the beginning of a war in a 
you know, history, historiographical study of how it began, the diplomatic history of the war, let's say. So it, I, I partly thought, I just, there's a world in, in newspaper reports. Obviously, they're not dependable entirely. They're always biased. They have many things that you have to keep in mind, but there are, they're kind of gritty texture to these newspaper reports that really interested me. So when I got to writing about the Second World War, I went back and used the newspapers as a primary source, as well as the the diary entries and the the diplomatic records that were published. Anything that was published, I thought, that gave me a feeling of something interesting and revealing that happened on a specific day was what I wanted to look at. And that, so it just sort of grew this way out of little moments as recorded in various sources. Mm, so one of the things that that opens up for me is, of course, when you're searching for something on microfiche, you kind of already know what you're looking for, if you know what I mean. And mm. certainly now the Google search engine has made that even more um, pointed, right? Like the idea of open stacks or looking at the original context of how articles are placed next to each other or what the advertisements were in the newspaper. How important was that quality of, um, well, I guess OpenStax is, you know, the kind of metaphor and actuality that Google eliminates and that the, maybe the microfiche was like this interim mm. stage between giving up the physical newspaper and now our online world. So I'm curious about that for you. Well, it's a complicated history because Google itself was involved in a big um, uh, digital project of uh, with the Google newspapers that has sort of been um, sidelined. So they were a source. One of the things I thought was, what would, how would you learn about the war if you just went to a big university library and stood in front of the stacks and just pulled down books? sort of that called out to you that, that well, oh, that's that looks like an interesting book and you have all the information about the thickness of the spines or the, the oldness of a particular book and a concentrated series of why are there six things all uniform volume one through six what's in that the records of the such and such so i did that at the university of new hampshire library a lot and i ended up having my backseat of my car just sort of filled with a uh a, a kind of portable, disorderly library. And, and one of the things I did for a while was just park, and I would reach my hand back randomly and just grab a book and pull it out and, and say, what in this book is unforgettable? What, what mm. it, I would read for, say, 45 minutes, close the book, was there anything there that I cannot forget? And that was the thing that would make it in. And funnily enough, then, as I did this sort of randomizing activity, the things would come together. There were certain dates, obviously, around which, not just Pearl Harbor, but there were certain nodes of perplexity and occurrence and, and a, a decision that would attract quotation. So mm. it sort of grew organically. Instead of growing chronologically, the way people lived through it, it, it grew um, piece by piece like something in a Petri dish or something. Right, which is 
I think, I mean, that's lovely because it does have an analogous relationship to reading the newspaper, the kind of way in which you you get caught by the tail, so to speak, of one thing in the paper. Mm. There's all that stuff in the paper. But mm. there's really only one thing that you go home at dinner and say, I read the craziest thing in the paper today. You <laughs> know, right? Like that yeah. Yeah. that that quality of the day's news does function like that. I wanted to ask you, you know, your writing is often compared to Proust, which really? that's like a problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done a lot of reading about you, sir. And um, <laughs> I don't think so. I, I didn't know that. I've forgotten yes, that. I watched a video of an interview with you in which you were compared to Proust and you deflected by discussing instead your interest in George Eliot, particularly Middlemarch. Oh. Um, yes, which I thought was, having never been compared to Proust myself, I filed that away of like, note to self, when compared to Proust, deflect with Eliot. Um, but I confess that your dropping of Middlemarch was really important for me because oh. my understanding of Middlemarch is, is partly comes through my understanding of it being a, you know, Virginia Woolf very famously says it's like the first novel, the best novel, her favorite novel. And mm. that means mm. a lot to me because my feminism is very inflected by Wolf, and I wondered if you if you might be willing to entertain a question about the novel as a form, particularly Middlemarch and its its um, central role in a in a Western canon, and then how those things open up onto feminism and what role feminism played in the method of assembling human smoke, if if it did play a role, or do you see it as a, a feminist project in any way? Well, those are very complicated, but I think, well, let's see. I, I just remember reading Middlemarch in, um, I guess I first read it in, in college, <clears throat> Bryn Mawr College, which is where I w met my wife eventually, but I, I like taking, the, the English department at Bryn Mawr College had a different way of teaching than the English department at Haverford, which is where I, down the street, which is where I lived. Anyway, the, 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 um, the novel just fascinated me because it was so, um, I guess, human. I, I was so, there's a particular piece of it that, that I think about a lot, actually, which is he, towards the end, I think, there's a description of how a candle on a table light up lights up the scratches on the table in a a sort of outward radiating way and that that's how an individual human being takes in the world is that 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 the the light of a single consciousness um reorients all of what is out there towards that person um and um, and the character of Dorothea, Dorothea, mm -hmm. um, appealed to me because it was a person struggling to do good, and and then getting sort of sidetracked by all by by this infatuation with Will and these various uh, complications that are human and and part of life. But she wanted to do something 
good and she was thwarted and and she tried in the end to uh, to reconcile those two things and she said i will learn to to i guess to will i will learn what everything costs mm-hmm. and and that was the the painful moment when you know she had all these plans for worker housing and everything and i always think of tolstoy reading middlemarch and thinking oh my god this is this is how it's done and then and then writing um anna karenina and 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 adding his own thing to it but it's just a it's well the, the the novel is the is a an achievement of i don't want to i don't want to be too gendery about it but but it is obviously something that is not the creation of dudes like me that's all i can say is it's um and it, but it's something that that you know it's it's just a beautiful thing that it's a, people read and well your description of that moment in middle march where the description of the candle and its lighting of the marks on the table to my ear has a kind of analogous relation to your own description of yourself in the front seat of the car randomly <laughs> lifting up any book in the back seat of the car to see yeah. what light your consciousness would shine upon the light of someone else's consciousness in the form of the book and that kind of reciprocity there is is sort of touching to me well I, I it's also it's also survival and i knew that i couldn't i knew that if i was going to write about the second world war i couldn't possibly compete with true historians so that i knew that i had to have a different path and maybe sometimes a the adoption of a of a randomness or, or a chancy approach allows you to find things that people who've read you know eighty t- times more than I will ever be able to read about the war have grown up reading about the war well it won't have and sometimes just going to a lo- look I one time to, the last scene one of the last scenes of the book Churchill is on uh, in a dining car coming back from giving a speech in. Ottawa, I think, and gives a toast and holds a sort of links arms with one of his bombing generals and and they sing old Lang Syne and stuff. And it's um it's a a powerful scene because Churchill is, you know, one of this one of the massive characters in in the book. And I found it because I went to a little a local library, the Westerly Rhode Island uh public library and i was looking on their shelves of world war ii books and there was this tiny book that was i think privately published it was the account of some photographer i think was it a a memoir of a photographer named Mm. martin i think and uh he he just described this moment when he was on the train with churchill that nobody else had included anywhere that i as far as i know and so it was sometimes it was just helpful to um to wander at random and see what see what came up also look at newspapers partly because you're looking for a certain headline maybe a certain bombing raid a certain atrocity or a certain moment of protest or whatever it is but the rest of the things in the paper do function 
uh, to help you understand that this is a very rich, juicy, messy world that the people were in, very contradictory, and that therefore um, reading around the main story, reading the stories on either side, functions as a kind of time machine where you're almost involuntarily pulled back into time and you feel that you're swimming in something uh, rather than kind of hovering over it. That makes so much sense to me. I mean, I think the strong appeal of the book is partly because you are not trained as a historian and you have functioned as a novelist. Your version of how to tell this story is so different than the the dominant academic historical accounts we have of it, which tend to be, a, you know, a parade of either battles or moments of diplomacy. Uh, in your version of World War II, Churchill is a monster, a man obsessed, a tyrant willing to kill enemy civilians, willing to allow his own citizens to be killed. FDR is an anti-Semite gunning to enter the war in ways that he can use to his own advantage. And their malfeasance is peppered with accounts of the vain and lonely pacifists, conscripts willing to go to jail rather than go to war, Quakers fighting for peace in the face of increasingly patriotic rhetoric. And I've thought about Human Smoke in relationship to Isabel Wilkerson's cast, in which she argues that Hitler and the Nazi regime borrowed a lot of their eugenic thinking and policies from America. Indeed, there's a chilling moment in cast where Wilkerson writes that even Hitler thought the Europeans would not tolerate a Jim Crow South situation in Europe, they, that, that it would be vis-a-vis -vis the Jews, like that it would be actually too extreme. And so I wonder if you could talk a bit about how your rethinking of Churchill and FDR impacts your sense of, of how fascism actually works on, a, on an international scale. And, and I, I mean, it's obviously a leading question. You know, I just want to cop to it because we live in a time where even, even President Obama will say democracy is in danger right now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> even good liberal Democrats think there's fascism afoot. And, <laughs> and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how your revisionist history and your commitment to the, pa the pacifism, the loneliness of the pacifist position inflects how you think about what's happening today. Wow. Uh, well, I think <laughs> one thing to say first is that I didn't want to write the book in, in a way that would have a message, because as you were pointing out, the method, the method of the book is very, um, as broken pieces of glass. It's a, it's a, it's a mosaic or it isn't even a mosaic because it, it doesn't all fit together. And the implication of one moment might contradict right. what happens in the next moment. So it's a, it's a, 
it's more like a, a lot of sea urchins that you're trying to hold in a bag and then, and they're, they're kind of spiky and they're, and they hurt. Mm -hmm. And, and, and what fundamentally what hit me about this thing was that there were certain people I could admire, um, and certain people that I was increasingly disgusted by, or, or at least, yeah, I, I guess that would be the truth. Obviously, the most revolting and horrifyingly awful person is Hitler and his band of of Nazis. Uh, th those those are the true bad guys, and that's. But how do you respond to those bad guys? Is is it seems as if you, we need to know what the characters of of other people are in in, in response to this tremendous dark shadowy threat and the quakers response was as one of them said i think it was clarence pickett who who was by the way <laughs> it just was i had no idea about this but these were guys from haverford college this is the place that i went to college knew nothing about this history and here are these guys who are hearing about kristallnacht and they're thinking what can we do um, mm -hmm. and that what they said was we want our response is is to suffer with the suffering would mean you have to go to a place and find out who is actually at risk and what what is causing them grief and pain and worry and then you have to try to take steps to make that better you have to keep your eye on the people who are most at risk and and what Pickett and Rufus Jones and these other, this small delegation of Quakers who went to Germany shortly after Kristallnacht was to find out that the only way that Jews, Jewish suffering could be alleviated was if the visa situation in American consuls was, was, uh, helped along and they even proposed we could have volunteers come in and help you guys at the state department process this hundred thousand visa applications by jews who wanted to leave the country and of course they were not successful in that but they did come up with ways for kinder transport and ways that helped some jews who survived the war who wouldn't have survived it and they also protested against the hunger method of fighting uh, and fighting a long war with no no negotiation and a hunger blockade. Who is that going to affect? Well, that's probably going to affect the people who are lowest, have the lowest um, status in the society. That is, uh, is the Jews and the and and other people who were in camps in prisoners. So I wanted to find heroes. I wanted to find people I could actually believe in as doing, as trying to do good in this chaotic situation. And then, um, and tell the truth about the people who are supposed to be the heroes, like Winston Churchill. Was he heroic or was he simply having a very good time making a huge number of, of bombers and blowing things up and spreading the war in places that it didn't need to be. Did he actually make the war last longer by his, and did Roosevelt make the war last longer by their policies of, of um, unconditional surrender? Right. Was it, 
all those questions, I just, I didn't want to, I, I just want to say that I did not want, I don't want people to come to the book thinking, this guy has it all figured out, because I don't. I am presenting a bunch of things that I found really striking in absolute chronological order. And then I want you to think, who are the voices you connected with? And who were the people whose policies you found repellent? And what do you what feeling do you end up with? I ended up with, as I said in the afterwards, a feeling of admiration for the pacifists who said repeatedly that that opposing violence with more violence is not the way. I think they were right. I got right. into an awful lot of trouble for saying that. I shouldn't have said that. I mean, sometimes I think, why did you say that in the afterward when the whole point of the book was to just leave it on the table. This is a certain selected, curated chronicle of a period of time. Read it and come to your own conclusion. Instead, at the end, I had to say the pacifists were right. And oh, man, did that piss people off. Even people, I think, who were who read the book and, and got interested, liked the book, liked the book as a reading experience. They came to it at the end, and that deeply affronted them. So maybe that was a strategic error. I don't know. I don't know. I, I can only offer it back to you, having gotten to that moment in the book twice, you know, separated by over a decade of reading in the midst of another war. And because you are right, the way the book is assembled is that there is, I mean, it's not a mosaic because there's no mortar. There's <laughs> there's nothing holding all those tesserae down, right? Like, mm -hmm. they're there. So there's a contingency in your method that carries through in the reading experience. You know, sort of halfway through, you're like, wow, this guy could, for this piece, you know there are 12 other pieces that didn't make this cut, you know? And so you're very <laughs> aware because it's such a non-heroic narrative, it's a non-synthetic narrative, that it makes you very aware of all the pieces that aren't there. And I think mm. history, academic history is not written in that way. Academic history is written in a way to suture you into the narrative and keep you in the pocket, so to speak. But when you sort of finally lay your cards on the table in the afterward and say, it's the pacifists for me all along, I think one of the things I identified with so strongly in that moment, the first go around as a feminist and the second go around now, I would also, I consider myself an abolitionist in terms of the prison and cops, was that you identified with a certain moment of failure. And, you know, not to get too romantic about that, like, but there is something real about that there's a kind of intellectual, ethical limit of pacifism where you have to sit with something so uncomfortable if you're going to be a pacifist. You mm. have to actually say that FDR and Churchill prolong the war and that war doesn't stop war. That war continues to enable itself, mm. even when we are confronted with a Bolsonaro, a Trump, a Hitler. It, you know, like, it only begets itself. 
Um, and that identification with failure is, in a way, more, I think, I would push that the people who got so affronted by it are affronted more by that. Mm. To be vulnerable, to, to say that the position you finally land on is just shy of impossible is mm -hmm. very vulnerable to me. Well, well, thank you for seeing it and responding that way. And I, I think that, yes, the pacifists failed, obviously, utterly failed to stop the war. And, and at every juncture when they called for some sort of moment of negotiation or something, they were rebuffed. Um, but if you rescue their voices, out uh, and tease those voices out of in all the clamor of 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 kind of war fever that happens and you know one of the goals of the book was to chronicle the way this feverish sense of of a war sort of gathers steam and, and it just the war the longer it goes becomes increasingly more violent and more and, and all sorts of taboos are uh, lines are crossed that would never have been crossed in the early months of a war. But the other part of it is that World War II is so endlessly used as a justification for other wars. And, and I was writing about a certain set of events in the Cold War, but this could be in, in Vietnam, it could, Korea, and, and any number of, of anti-terror efforts that have followed that have you know been part of our own lives so because it's always the touchstone that if you that if you do a certain thing it's appeasement and if you um if you don't stop now this that this this uh terrible person will triumph and we have to send a message and all those things you have to take up the second world war if you are somebody who is genuinely horrified by the effects of war. You have to take up this good, so-called so good war and really anatomize it and find out what other ways people were proposing at the time to, to deal with something so appalling as Hillerism. I mean, it's obviously a very, it's just a, it's something so horrifying to every civilized person that you can understand why people kind of went off their rockers and started to talk about uh, mass sort of semi-genocidal bombings and things because it was just so unthinkably awful. Um, mm. So that's, it has to be taken apart and the, and the reasonable voices, some of them in, in, in conscientious objectors, some of them um, Jews on the scene, looking at the at at who was suffering, some of them um, religious leaders actually, um, who who had a different approach. And of course, Gandhi is one of them. Um, those all those voices have to be rescued uh, a little bit, or given. I guess I felt I was. There's so many. And I don't also, I, I, I agree with you that there are many overly uh, synthetic accounts of wars. And that was one reason I wanted to do this one that was lumpy and, and fragile and broken. But mm. it's, there's also a tremendous number of really brilliant, brilliant books 
of historical studies of some aspect of World War II. And I used those books, and I wouldn't want to say that, it, that it's wrong to approach writing about a war in a more fluent way that uh, talks about forces and um, uh, is, 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 I guess, has fewer spiky parts and more smoothed off transitions mm. and things. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good. It's brilliant. It's just not the way I thought I could write about it because, look, if you are somebody, let's say you're a press spokesman in London and or a, a person in a, in a Polish ghetto or something, you have that moment, some choices in front of you. You have things that trouble you and fill you with grief or resentment. Those, that approaching history that way as a series of pointed moments, I think is just truer to life. It's why mm -hmm. I liked writing the news, reading the newspaper, because the newspaper always has to have some sort of lead event. This is what happened at the meeting yesterday. It's, there were other meetings, and, and there's a long history, but we're not going to talk about this. What happened yesterday? Why did Roosevelt say this to the reporters in his office yesterday? That, that approach leads you maybe to a kind of, uh, just a, a kind of a firefly experience of, of a meadow rather than um, a daytime overhead shot. Right. Well, I think, you know, I have a a dear friend of mine who was a very important activist in the AIDS HIV space during the plague years. Greg Bordowitz, uh, one of the things he's fond of saying, and that I'm fond of quoting him as saying is, um, you know, the only politics are the politics in the room. Like, mm. it's always trying to bring people back to the specificity of, like, what are we doing right now right in now. this space-time continuum, rather than pulling back, right, mm. like you were saying, to the view of the meadow. Because there is this way that World War II is used, I often find, as a way to stop conversation rather than continue it. You know, mm. you say you're a pacifist or you say as I have said, you know, I'm an abolitionist. Like, I don't believe in cops and I don't believe in prison. Mm. And people are like, well, what do you do about Charles Manson? Or what do you do about World War II? As, mm. if, as if that is to prove that these forces, that humans that we make together, that, that in which we kill one another, <laughs> mm. somehow have legitimacy rather than this other more painful sticky work i love your image of trying to hold a, a a basket full of sea urchins you know like this prickly work of actually trying to figure out how we wouldn't kill each other you know <laughs> like yeah. that that's really would be the goal there not how we could kill each other and win but how we could not kill each other well it, wouldn't it be nice if if we could approach it that way. I, I think of Robert Frost wrote about that was it's good in poetry to have, to write about griefs and not grievances. And I was very aware of that as I was writing the book. The things that made me cry 
were the things I needed to put in the book. The things that made me pissed off, you know, the things that had, but but the pissed off part, you have to be very careful with that because, you know, uh, it's it, a little goes a long way. But if you're writing about, say, you know, Mary Berg is in the Polish ghetto and she's and they've set up a drawing class and they, and the the the, the girl who's modeling is is has a fever and. Anyway, it's, you know, it's just a, it's a moment. It's a tiny moment that implies a whole life, but it's, it's, it's a grief. And there's something that if you have a texture in which the griefs loom larger than the grievances, maybe you can bring people along to a, a more reasonable view of future conflicts than if you slam away at 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 the at the, at the misjudgments. Let's say uh, uh, we can itemize how bad Hitler is, and let's say we can look at Churchill and itemize all the misjudgments and foolish, crazy, actually insane things that he did in in the war. Um, that only gets you so far because you have to suffer with the suffering. You really have to. And the book really wrecked me. Um, I was really not well <laughs> by mm. the end because there's, uh, because for every thing that I'd written about, there was, there was potentially an infinitude of other sad things to record. And this is essentially one of the worst periods, if not the worst period in the history of humanity. So, it's something that is shattering to go through, really. And I, I, it took me a long time to just get better mm. um, afterward. And I, I think some of that is necessary. The, the reader has to suffer with the suffering and realize what's at stake. I think that that's um, so much of what you've just said resonates with me so deeply. I mean, particularly this sense that to stay with grief rather than grievance, you know, to, because what I hear in that, and again, you're, and what I hear as well in your kind of cautionary tale about like, you just need a little bit of anger, not a lot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that grief is one of grief like love, right? I mean, you know, grief, mm. grief will make you so vulnerable like it's about not having skin you know mm, it's about mm. being flayed and and um and we drape ourselves in grievance i think to as a skin to cover that grief right and so what does it mean to to pull that grievance away and and to be in that discomfort that pain it doesn't surprise me to hear that the book caused suffering in you it causes suffering in the reader mm. and your sense that it's shattering is really spot on i mean i feel shattered by it both times you know just wow. like really broken apart and then but i think about i mean i think about jewish mysticism and the idea of the mitzvah that like the world is a broken vessel and <laughs> Our task is to just try and put the shards back together one, maybe one 
tiny little shard at a time, one mm. shard a day, you know, that, and that to stay present to that labor um, is to stay present to something that's maybe impossible. Like maybe pacifism is impossible. Maybe privileging grief over grievances is, is impossible. Maybe abolition is impossible, but that doesn't mean it's not ethically necessary to still be human and, you know, to stay connected to how we are connected to each other. In that regard, the book is so powerful to me in that way. Um, and it's precisely because it is itself so broken up, you know, it's not all sutured together. Well, I'm I'm so grateful to you for taking it that way. It's it was um it was the the difficulty is is to see how to apply any lessons that you might learn from a book like this to and you asked about this and I realized I just totally didn't didn't respond. Why, why, what do I think about currents in fascism now and and how would and I guess it's just a, a basic feeling that that there's a that 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 there's these kind of demonic, hostile elements that are always wanting to come to the surface, and so we have to maybe have these poles of that are idealistic poles of 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 kindness or loving kindness or something that help people uh realize that there another there's another i i just found such a beautiful thing which was you know you i would be reading somebody's diary um and churchill had just maybe made a huge fulminating speech and 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 the entire congress of the united states had leapt to their feet and applauded uh, the the program of ruin that he was planning for the entire country of Germany and the, and the program of, of enemy hating and all that, which is obviously this one strategy. But then there would be somebody writing in a journal saying, there he is, he's just going to say all this. And it's, and, and the woman, I can't remember her name, is saying, it's wrong. It's, you know, and, and it's just a diary entry and she's not saying it on a radio or anything. Sometimes people said it on radios and they were arrested or, or fired from their positions. Let's say in, in Germany itself, um, people arguing for some sort of restraint, but it's, it's good to listen to those people when you're in the state of having, of, of moving through the horrible stuff and think that human sensibleness and and kindness and just just humanly recognizable feeling is possible. It's possible to have that um, in the midst of utter moral squalor. It's possible. There, many many people retain their sense of you know of human and this. Well, let's say with the well anyway. I don't want to get into the current situation because I'm not knowledgeable enough to talk about it, but presented with any sort of fascistic excrescence, there are plenty of people who respond to it in a way that in which they are managed to hold their own humanity together. And then there are the cheerleaders and the people who 
and the saber rattlers and the, you know, the people who work for the war machine, who are just looking to make some money off it. Right. Well, I think that Human Smoke is a book that helps me hold on to precisely that human moment of the diary entry of of holding on to um, the kindness and goodness and a kind of inherent ethics in which we respect one another as human beings on this planet. And um, perhaps being shattered is, I don't know, the path to that space. And it's counterintuitive, right? You would think that throwing a party would help us get to our common humanity. But perhaps it's precisely this moment of of being shattered and having to navigate something that feels impossible that is the thing that connects you to that human-to-human ethical connection. And I just, I want to really thank you for writing this book and, and for talking with me about it after, I mean, you wrote it, I think it's in 2008. So thanks for being willing to go back in the Wayback Time Machine and talk about past work with me. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.